who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Lesser gods. Brian stopped before he reached the door, noticing his shadow extending towards the base of a dead conifer half buried in snow. A sinking pit began to form in his gut as he stood there, looking at his grievously elongated shadow. Or was it the tree that disturbed him, its crooked branches stripped barren by the relentless climate of the canyon? No, it was neither, he realized. It was the silence, the pervasive, isolating silence. Never in all his years working ski patrol at Astor Peak had he been on the mountain when it was this quiet. There was always something. Lively bird song, the distant scream of a snowmobile, the giddy voices of children on the sled hill, or the joyous chatter of hotel guests having drinks in the jacuzzi. But tonight, there was nothing, aside from the barely audible patter of snowflakes falling on the world around him. Of course, that wasn't so unusual. It was nearly 8 p.m., and by then the skiers and snowboarders had usually gone home, leaving the mountain quiet and dark. But by that time, Gryan too had usually gone home. Unless, of course, it was a night like this. A night of Interlodge. Interlodge was a rare but not unheard of occurrence in Lower Granite Canyon. Annual snowfall in the canyon could total 700 inches or more, and with the steep, towering faces straddling the canyon's only road, avalanches were an unfortunately common occurrence in winter. 
to mitigate the risk posed by avalanches, the Utah Department of Transportation would set off detonations to start smaller, more controllable avalanches. While they performed this important work, a shelter-in-place order, called Interlodge, mandated that anyone in the canyon remain indoors until the work was complete. On this night, though, the Interlodge had been sprung not by planned mitigation work, but by a large, unintended slide near the mouth of the canyon that left the highway under several tons of snow. Crews were working through the night to clear the road, but it was likely to take until well after sunrise for access to be restored. That meant anyone stuck in the canyon would be required to spend the night at Astor Peak's only hotel. Lodging fees were, of course, waived for anyone stranded on the mountain without a place to stay, though accommodations weren't always luxurious. Aside from Grian, there were 17 souls confined to the hotel that night. Three of them were hotel staff. Fourteen were guests. When the avalanche had happened, Grian had come off the slopes and was having a drink in the hotel bar. The slide wasn't near enough to see, but it had shaken the windows, and he'd felt its rumble in the countertop. A minute later, word had come through that the highway was buried. It was an annoyance, an inconvenience, but not a disaster. As far as road crews could ascertain, nobody had been killed or injured in the slide. And, Grian reasoned, it would make his commute to work the following morning much easier. But still, as he had stepped outside to make sure everyone was indoors before the hotel locked up for the night, he had gotten that sinking feeling. Looking at his shadow, at the crooked tree standing above it, he had felt like something was amiss. It was a fleeting sensation, indeterminate in its origin. But it was there, floating in the edges of his vision like the fog manifested by his nervous exhalations. After taking one last look at the darkened, snowy landscape, he turned and retreated to the warm interior of the hotel. When he got inside and pulled the door shut, the hotel manager, Mira Gosalves, produced a key and locked the deadbolt. The interlodge had officially begun. And while the Astor Peak Hotel may not have been a lavish mountain chateau, there were certainly worse places to be cooped up for the night. The old lodge wasn't without its charm. Its lobby featured a grand fireplace, flanked by two worn leather chairs, and sitting beneath a massive rack of moose antlers. Beyond the fireplace stood the hotel bar, cast in warm light and alive with banter. Grian stomped the snow from his boots, and together he and Mira walked into the bar and sat down. Mira was a small-statured but assertive woman. She wore a perpetual goggle tan on her freckled face and had long auburn hair. She couldn't have been taller than 5'3", but she had a commanding presence. She was one of the fastest and most aggressive skiers that Grian had ever seen on the mountain. The two of them had been friends for almost 15 years, she having worked at the hotel for almost exactly as long as Grian had been a ski patroller. On a few occasions, the two had even been intimate, but they eventually decided it was best to keep things professional between them. 
They looked around the bar, where a handful of the interred hotel guests were enjoying drinks and lively conversation. Some of them seemed nervous, wondering what would happen if the crews were unable to clear the road. Others embodied a more adventurous spirit, speaking excitedly about how great the skiing would be the following day. Gryan ordered a beer, and Natalie, the hotel bartender, brought it to him. You want anything? she asked Mira. I shouldn't, she replied. Someone's got to steer the ship. Fair enough, Natalie said. But if you change your mind, let me know. In the corner of the room, a neon jukebox played Vincent by Don McLean. Above the jukebox, there were big red letters emblazoned on the wall. Happy hour every day, the letters read. It was a sign that Grian had seen countless times, but only that night did it strike him as novel. Your prescribed daily hour of happiness, he thought, taking a long swig from his beer. He noticed Mira looking out the window, where the branches of trees were bowing under the weight of the snow. No sign of letting up, he said. It's supposed to snow another eight inches overnight, said Mira. How are the guests holding up? asked Ryan. They seem okay so far, she said. We'll see how they're doing come morning. You know how Interlodge makes people. Gryan nodded. Indeed, he knew quite well. He'd been through at least a dozen such nights. And while he'd seen his share of unruly behavior, drunken guests and skiers in the grips of cabin fever, most of the Interlodges he'd been through passed relatively smoothly. Sometimes, though, he didn't think it was the mere fact that they were locked in a hotel in the middle of a blizzard that made people uneasy. He felt like it was the place itself. It could feel hostile. He'd never put too much weight into stories of hauntings or curses, but Astor Peak had its share. In 1868, the site was host to a tragic event. Not far from where the hotel now stood, an emigrant family bound for Salt Lake City had disappeared. Like many Mormon families in the late 19th century, the McLean family felt persecuted. So, when they began hearing talk of the religious refuge that could be found in the burgeoning Salt Lake City, they decided to take up their roots. They packed everything they owned into a single wagon and began the long trek from Maryland to Utah. There were 14 people in the party almost all of them members of the extended McLean family. They had crossed into northwestern Utah and were making their way into Lower Granite Canyon the last time anyone saw them. A few days later, their encampment was discovered by a fur trapper on his way to Colorado. But the members of the McLean family were nowhere to be found. They hadn't broken camp or taken their wagon, and all their food and water was left behind. The McLeans had clearly made a hasty departure, but nobody could say where they'd gone. The only hint of their departure was a brief, handwritten note found at their camp. It can only be reasoned that our Heavenly Father has wrought this upon us, the note read. There was no indication as to what the message was supposed to mean, though. U.S. Marshals were dispatched and a search ensued, but little progress was made. Eventually, the McLeans were presumed to be dead. 
Over time, interest waned, and by present day, few people that visited Astor Peak were even aware of the historic disappearance. The missing McLean party had become little more than a frontier legend. Gryan listened to the wind whistling through the canyon until the noise was broken by a group of guests that sounded like they'd had plenty to drink. So, one of the guests said, theatrically holding his palms out to silence the group, Daffy Duck and Elmer Fudd are robbing a liquor store. Daffy grabs a bottle off the shelf and holds it up. Is this whiskey? he asks. So Elmer looks at him and says, Not as whiskey as wobbing a bank. Riotous laughter overcame the group, and Gryan turned to Mira as she rolled her eyes. They're like children, she said under her breath. Outside, a gust of wind carried a dense flurry of snow past the window. It almost looked like a great wave washing up against the porthole of a ship. Gryan had never traveled by sea, but sitting there he could imagine how isolating it would feel. Would not want to be stuck out there, Mira said, herself drawn to the torrent of snow berating the window. Gryan opened his mouth to respond, but then stopped, suddenly struck by a memory. He was thinking of a time, a few winters before, when he had awoken in his bed late at night in the middle of a heavy storm. He had gone to the front room of his house to watch the snow fall. As he looked out the window, he had seen a small cat, hardly bigger than a kitten, searching aimlessly for shelter in the harsh winter elements. He had thrown on a pair of boots and grabbed a flashlight, but by the time he got outside, the cat was nowhere to be seen. He searched for as long as he could, until he himself could no longer handle the cold. But when he went back inside and returned to his bed, he found that he was unable to sleep, his mind constantly returning to the helpless cat stuck outside in the snowstorm. Do cats get cold? he wondered. He was pretty sure they did. The room began to grow quiet as guests slowly retired to their rooms. I suppose we should get some sleep as well, Mira said. Together? Gryan asked. No, you lunk, she said. Stay here. I'll get you a room. She hopped off her stool and walked over to the front desk, grabbing a room key off of one of the available hooks. Here, she said, handing it to him. You're up on the third floor. Thanks, Gryan said. He finished his beer and got slowly to his feet. Guess I'll see you in the morning, he said. Guess so, Mira replied. Gryan walked down the hallway the hotel's old oak floor creaking with his steps. He moved into the cramped elevator, full of stale-smelling air, and rode it up to his floor. He walked down the hallway, past aging light fixtures made to look like candlesticks, before unlocking the door to room 309 and walking inside. The room was small but comfortably furnished. The burgundy bedspread was freshly made, sheets tight enough to bounce a quarter. Rustic end tables sat on either side, and mounted on the far wall was a bulky flat-screen TV. He sat down on the edge of the bed and looked out the window at the dark, snowy mountainside. He was still thinking about that cat he'd seen in the storm all those years before. 
He wondered if it had died out there, alone, in the snow. As he sat and gazed absently out the window, he saw something that looked out of place. Along the snowy slopes and towering pine trees, there was an outline of a person. At least, he thought it was a person. When he looked right at them, they seemed to vanish. Like an illusion lingering in his peripheral vision, the figure was there, and then it wasn't. Soon, he saw what he thought was another person, half obscured by a tree, a little further up the slope. But again, when he tried to focus on them, they were gone. Several more times, he would swear for a second that he could make out a figure, a torso or an arm, a featureless head emerging from behind a tree. But as he squinted and tried to see them in detail, they would vanish. Were people really out there? Playing some kind of bizarre prank? Or was he losing the plot, he wondered. What disturbed him the most about the people in the trees was that none of them seemed to be wearing any clothes, at least not that he could see. In the momentary glimpses he would catch of them, he never saw any clothing, only the smooth outline of what appeared to be the human form. It had to be an illusion, he thought. There was no way anyone could survive out there in that cold without clothes on. And how could they hide so discreetly, managing only to appear fleetingly before disappearing from view? After several minutes of staring at the darkened mountainside, he was no longer able to spot the unsettling naked figures, and gathered that he had surely been mistaken, that a long day of staring out at the blinding white snowpack had clearly done a number on his eyes. He shut the blinds and began to get ready for bed. He didn't have a change of clothes with him, so he would have to sleep in his long johns, but that didn't bother him much. He had slept in much fouler garments. He peeled back the sheets and lay down in bed, listening to the drone of the TV playing an old Seinfeld episode as he fell asleep. It was nearing 10 p.m. and he had almost drifted off when he was startled by the sound of someone yelling. He half rose and looked at the TV trying to determine the source of the noise, but it seemed to be coming from somewhere outside the room. He couldn't tell what they were saying, but he could hear the emotion in their voice. It was the type of voice someone used when they were afraid, or angry, or desperate. He rose from bed and slid his pants back on, walking tentatively out into the hallway. It didn't take him long to determine where the commotion was coming from, a room down the hall from his own. As he approached, he realized that the reason it was so loud was because the room's door was open. Get out! Get out of here! The voice inside the room was saying. Gryan eased himself into the room, where the aggravated man stood, ostensibly alone, screaming at the walls of his room. He was short and stocky, with sandy brown hair and a neatly combed mustache. His face was red and sweaty, and Gryan could see a vein pulsing in his temple. When the man noticed Gryan, he fell silent. Thank God, the man said. Can you get this man out of my room? Gryan looked around, 
surveying the room, and then looked back at the man. There was no one else there. Um, who are you talking about, sir? Gryan asked. What do you mean, who am I talking about? The man howled. He's standing right there. The man gestured towards an empty corner of the room, as if there was someone standing there. He's looking right at us, with that smile of his. Gryan looked to where the man had gestured, and then back at his red, sweaty face. Sir, did you take anything tonight? He asked. The man threw his hands up in the air. For Christ's sake, he said. Can we get someone in here that can actually help me? I'm a paying customer and this man is trespassing. I want him out. It was then that Mira, herself having also heard the uproar, entered the room to see what was going on. The frustrated guest conveyed his peculiar grievance to Mira, and after being stumped just as Gryan had been, she decided to compromise and offer the man the room next door. Gryan stayed with the man while Mira went downstairs to retrieve the key. He felt more than a little uneasy standing there with him. He kept looking at the corner of the room where the man's invisible antagonist was supposedly standing. When Mira returned with the key, the man gladly accepted it. Gryan made sure he knew he'd be right down the hall if he needed anything, and then he walked Mira to the elevator. Well, that was weird, he said. You think that guy's okay? I don't know, Mira said. Maybe keep an eye on him, though. Let me know if he gets all worked up again. All right, Gryan said. Well, you know where to find me. He returned to his room, and after triple-checking the lock on the door, laid back down in bed. He was exhausted, but struggled to fall asleep, grappling with his persistent fear that something was wrong. He couldn't stop thinking about what he thought he'd seen outside, about the man down the hall from him. He's looking right at me, the man had said of his invisible intruder. Eventually, Gryan rose and crept back over to the window, looking out at the tree-laden mountainside, fearing that again there would be figures out there, lingering among the trees. He stared for some time, but couldn't see anyone, growing increasingly convinced that he too had simply been seeing things. He returned to bed, but no sooner had he laid down when he was startled by the sound of heavy footsteps thudding down the hallway. He jumped out of bed again and approached the door of his room, cracking it slowly and peering out. The hallway was dim and quiet as he emerged and approached the room that the man was in. He could see again that the door to the man's room hung ajar, but hardly had he noticed the detail when the hallway's light suddenly flickered out and his surroundings were consumed by darkness. The hotel's power had gone out, he realized. It happened from time to time, especially in heavy storms like these, but he couldn't imagine a less opportune time to be unable to see. He felt his way back down the hall to his room, and after digging through his belongings, retrieved the flashlight he kept in his bag. Flicking it on, he returned to the hallway, finding it still empty. He followed the beam of his flashlight through the darkness, unwilling to veer from its illumination as if he believed something would reach out of the void and touch him. When he arrived at the room of the man down the hall from him, he stepped inside, 
shining his light throughout the room. A few minutes of nervous searching revealed that the room was empty. Hello? Grian said, stricken by how empty his voice sounded. But there was no response. And yet, he still expected to hear one. Despite his search finding nobody else in the room, he couldn't help but feel like he was in the presence of someone. Like somebody was standing there with him, looming just beyond the beam of his flashlight. There were fleeting moments when he swore he saw an appendage, a torso or a shadow of a lurking form, but further inspection always revealed a piece of furniture or clothing that his deceitful eyes had perverted into a human figure. Still, a part of him refused to believe that he was being mistaken, that he wasn't truly alone, and instead was simply failing to perceive what was directly in front of him. He gathered himself and slowly returned to the hallway, sweeping the lonely corridor with his flashlight. Hello, he said again. And while he didn't expect to hear an answer, he nearly dropped his flashlight in shock when he saw a figure standing in front of the elevator at the end of the hallway. Sir? he ventured, proceeding cautiously. But the figure at the end of the hallway remained silent, standing still with its head drooped. It wasn't until he got close that he realized it was, in fact, the man from down the hall. Sir, he said again, illuminating the man's vacant features. Are you okay? Slowly, the man lifted his head, his expression one of barren fear, as if he had just witnessed something incomprehensible. I don't know how I got here, the man said. Grind could see that his hands were trembling. That's okay, he said, gradually moving closer. What's your name? The man's eyes grew distant and his expression slackened, as if he was struggling to recall. Tom, he said finally. My name is Tom. Okay, Tom, Grind said. Let's just get you back to your room. He held Tom gently by the arm and led him back down the hall to his room. When he was safely inside, Grian pulled the door shut and headed to the stairs to go find Mira. With the power out and at least one guest behaving erratically, he was growing increasingly concerned that something was wrong. His footsteps echoed through the stairwell as he descended towards the first story, where the designated hotel employee room was located. He was surprised at how quiet the hotel was. Had nobody noticed the power go out? He didn't expect everyone to be frantic, but surely he wasn't the only one that felt something was amiss. Maybe they were all asleep. When he reached the first floor and entered the hallway, he shined his light in both directions, but found it empty, just as the other floors had been. As he proceeded towards Mira's room, though, he again felt that sense he couldn't reconcile, that he wasn't alone. He slowly turned and again flashed the light behind him, but this time he saw someone standing there, only a few paces behind him. The sight shocked him, especially because he didn't immediately recognize the person. He could tell it was a male, but for some reason he couldn't focus on any particular aspect of the man. It was like he couldn't bring him into focus. Like no matter what he did, the amorphous figure remained only in his peripheral vision. 
and even from what he could see, something just didn't seem right about the man. He seemed like he had too many fingers on his hands, though try as he might, Grian was unable to count them. He looked back at the man's face, and when he did, he had a peculiar but undeniable sense that more than just one pair of eyes was looking back at him, that myriad sets of eyes were watching him from some place that he couldn't perceive. Gradually, and then all at once, the man's face came into focus, and Grian could see that it was the man from the bar, the one who had told the ridiculous Looney Tunes joke earlier in the night. What are you doing here? Grian asked. The man's face hardened, as if he felt challenged by the question. I just heard a sound, he said wanted to make sure everyone was okay. All right, Grian said. Well, why don't you head back to your room for now? The power's out. I don't want anyone to get hurt. Oh, the man said. You don't want anyone to get hurt. He seemed almost entertained at the expression, his eyes glinting behind shaggy locks of hair. But after a minute or so of posturing, he turned and sauntered back down the hallway disappearing into the darkness from which he'd emerged. Feeling the cinch of anxiety tightening in his chest, Grian turned and proceeded towards Amira's room. His heart sank when he got there, though, realizing her door was hanging open. He eased himself inside. Mira, he called out with an unsteady voice, but there was only silence. Proceeding further into the room, he found the bedspread torn from the mattress. Mira's belongings were in disarray, her bag knocked over, clothing strewn across the floor. There was no sign of her, though. Grian's pulse began to quicken. A slight tremble ran through him, and he tightened his grip on the flashlight to keep it steady. Mira, he called out again. Cell service at the resort was shoddy at best but he pulled out his phone to try and call her anyway. A second later, though, he saw that her phone lay discarded in the corner of the room. He rushed back out into the hallway and headed towards the lobby, still shouting Mira's name. He felt himself growing more desperate each time she didn't answer. He was moving swiftly down the hallway, the honeycomb-patterned carpet receding into the darkness before him, when suddenly... Someone stepped out of a doorway. It was a short woman with messy tassels of dark hair hanging in front of her face. She was wearing white pajamas and held a glass in one hand. Have you seen my husband? She asked. Um, Grian tried, taken aback. I don't know. What does he look like? The woman looked at him absently, as if the question hardly registered. I need to find him she said resolutely. I have to give him something. Okay, Grian said. Why don't you stay here for now? I can go look for him. What is it you need to give him? I need to find him, she said again. I need to give him this. He left it. She held up the glass and Grian could see that there was liquid in it. It was a dark red liquid, and it looked like something was floating in it. It slowly bobbed to the surface as Grian inspected it with his flashlight. And then he realized what it was. An eye. 
Bits of stringy flesh hung from its perimeter, and its pupil pointed skyward, as if it was looking up at him. He recoiled in terror, tottering backwards on his heels. When he had steadied himself, he pushed past the woman and began staggering towards the lobby. Hot bile was climbing up his esophagus as he struggled to keep from vomiting. With quivering hands, he dug his phone from his pocket. He held it up in the air as he arrived in the lobby, searching for a signal. But the little rectangular bars were absent from the screen, the words, no service, in their place. He rushed over to the front desk and pulled the phone from its cradle, but there was no dial tone, despite his repeatedly punching the switch. Whatever took the power out must have taken out the phone lines, too. He hung up the phone and checked the front door, but it was still locked. He ventured through the hotel's small kitchen to check the back door, and found it still locked as well. As he stood there, trying to decide his next move, he heard a frantic scream echo from somewhere else in the hotel. He returned to the lobby and looked back down the hallway leading to the rooms, a gloomy corridor receding into a blackened abyss. He shouted Mira's name again, but again there was no response. His call was simply swallowed by the darkness. He didn't know what to do. Nothing had ever trained him for a moment like this. But he knew he had to do something, and he had to do it fast. So, seeing no other options, he returned to the bowels of the hotel. But before he did, he retrieved the hotel's master key from the front desk. He had to find as many guests as he could and get them to safety. But first, he would have to find Mira. The building was only three stories tall, contained only thirty rooms. So wherever Mira was, she couldn't be far. He took the stairs back up to the third floor and returned to his room. He put on his jacket and his ski pants before finding his snow boots and putting them on as well. Armed with only a flashlight and a pocket knife, he began his sweep of the rooms. He knocked on each door, giving a brief pause before unlocking it and peeking inside. Some of the rooms were vacant. Others appeared to be assigned to guests, containing bags and shoes and coats. But none of them were occupied. The room belonging to the frightened guest named Tom was still empty as well. Beginning to fear that he was alone, he descended to the second story. Upon entering the first room, he found it empty, but he noticed a peculiar smell, something vague and metallic. He went to the next room, where the smell grew stronger. As he stepped up to the third door, the smell grew distinct like that of iron or rust. And beyond the door, he could hear a faint rumble. He knocked twice. Hello? He said. Is someone in there? Inserting the master key into the lock, he turned the handle and slowly entered the room. The beam of his flashlight pierced through the darkness as he tried to assess what was inside. At first, it appeared that the floor was littered with clothing and belongings, as Mira's room had been. But as he looked closer, he realized that it wasn't only clothing and shoes, but also the bodies of the people wearing them. The floor was covered with lifeless figures. 
but one figure looked like it was suspended above them. It was human-like in its shape, crouched on all fours. Its head hung down between its arms, and on top of its cranium was a slit. The skin was peeled back like lips, revealing a shiny row of pointed teeth where teeth weren't supposed to be. It was feeding on one of the bodies, its skull seeming to split in half as it tore flesh from bone with the uncanny mouth atop its head. Suddenly, it stopped, flaps of skin closing over teeth as it tilted its head upwards and showed Gryan its face, a face that seemed to be changing, to be taking shape before his eyes. It was as if it didn't have a face until Gryan was there to look at it. When it did take shape, Gryan recognized it as the man from the bar, the one he'd bumped into in the hallway. By the time this grotesque thing had gotten to its feet, Gryan was already stumbling through the dark to get out of the room. He pulled the door shut behind him, not that he thought it would stop the ungodly creature, and began sprinting down the hallway. He'd only managed a few paces when he collided with someone and they both fell to the floor. He scrambled to his feet and shined his light down on the person he'd slammed into. When he realized it was Mira, he swelled with relief. We have to get out of here, he said, helping her up. I know, she said breathlessly. They vaulted down the stairs and ran through the darkness to the lobby. Gryan stopped before they reached the door. There might be others that are still alive, he said, shocked to hear that string of words coming out of his own mouth. But Mira was shaking her head. They're all gone, she said, unlocking the door anxiously. They heard the rumble of footsteps coming down the stairs, closing in on them, and together they pushed through the door. One after the other, they high-stepped through the snow as fast as their legs would let them. Eventually, they reached the resort's vehicle depot, set back in the woods a few hundred feet from the hotel. Gryan produced a key and unlatched the building's utility door, its steel panels lifting to reveal a snowcat and a small fleet of snowmobiles. The cat was out of commission, one of its treads having broken a few days before, but several of the snowmobiles were in working order. Mira straddled one and started it, its engine coming to life with a high-pitched whine. Gryan hopped on another and started his as well. He stole one last look back at the hotel, where he could see a figure emerging and appearing to crawl through the snow towards them. When he looked back at Mira, she was pulling out of the depot. Come on, she yelled. I know where we can find help. He followed, flipping on his snowmobile's headlight as they started through the densely falling snow. They advanced through the darkness, weaving through trees towards the mouth of the canyon. Gryan's nose and cheeks grew numb as the frozen air zipped past. As they navigated around a rocky outcropping where the canyon grew narrow, Gryan saw a faint glow shining through the trees up ahead. Thank God, he thought. It must be the road crews clearing the slide. It grew difficult for him to maintain speed through the narrow, tree-lined canyon, and as they drew nearer to the light in the distance, Gryan almost lost sight of Mira. 
He was more than a little confused when he arrived at the source of the light and found that it wasn't road crews at all. The light was emanating from the mouth of a small cave, or perhaps an abandoned mine. Mira's snowmobile was parked outside the rocky opening, and she had already dismounted when he pulled up to it. He shut off the engine and lit his flashlight as he stepped off his vehicle. The frigid air left his fingers feeling stiff, and he shivered as he moved. Snow crunched beneath his boots as he approached the mouth of the cave. Mira, he called, his voice echoing faintly through the chamber. He peered inside, trying to determine the source of the light, but the glare was so bright he had to shade his eyes. He stepped a few feet further into the opening, calling Mira's name once more. He still couldn't make out the source of the light, but he could sense that someone was inside. He detected faint movement, deeper down. Hello, Gryan. He was startled to hear Mira's voice behind him, and he spun around to find her standing at the mouth of the cave. The light was illuminating her features, but her face seemed to be shifting. Her eyes and nose appeared as though they were melting, sliding gradually lower as the skin on her face slackened. The thing that stood before him no longer bared any resemblance to Mira, its wrinkled forehead peeling open to reveal the impossible mouth atop its head. Grian's hand tightened around the handle of his pocket knife. He felt his body tense. Hey, Jeff here. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, I just want to let you know that I have a Patreon. It charges $3 per new episode. You also get to listen to every episode early and without any ads. Plus, you get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long, sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery thriller story. It's about a journalist who's sort of struggling to make sense of the details of a missing persons case that he's covering. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on whatever podcasting app you like. There's a link in the show notes for this episode, as well as in the bio of the show, but if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. You can also follow me on social media. There's links to Instagram and Twitter in the show notes as well. And as always, thank you so much for listening, for leaving reviews and ratings. All that stuff seriously means a lot to me. I really appreciate hearing from all of you. So thank you. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. 
Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.